0: Welcome to the Essential Financial Advisor Marketing Podcast. In this podcast, you'll get discussions and interviews 100% dedicated to helping financial advisors with their marketing challenges, as well as sharing what's working well in their practice. The Essential Financial Advisor Marketing Podcast is produced by financialadvisors.com, the premier directory for financial advisors across the US. Your hosts and panelists include Jim Eckel president of FinancialAdvisors.com and Ken Tucker, Marketing Solutions Architect. So thank you for checking us out and please let us know how we can better help you grow your advisory practice.
1: Hello there. Welcome to the Essential Financial Advisor Marketing Show brought to you by FinancialAdvisor.com, the consumer-friendly, advisor-driven, comprehensive marketing service for independent financial advisors. I'm Jim Eckel My co-host is Ken Tucker. (laughs) We'd like to chat with you today about essential financial advisor marketing techniques. Our guest for today is Juan Ross. Juan Ross is with the Foreign Financial Management Group. Welcome Juan. Thank you very much, Jim and Ken. I appreciate it. It's a pleasure to be here. Very good. Let me start out with uh, just a basic question is how long have you been an advisor and In what part of the country are you located?
2: All right. Uh, Let's see. I got my CFP designation in 2010. I started doing some advising on my own right around that time. So it's been, what, 11 and a half years or so. I joined uh, my current firm at the very beginning of 2020. At that time, we were under a different name. We were an independent RIA at that point. We've since joined Forum Financial uh, in January of 2019, but it's basically the same team, same address and everything else. And we're located in Thousand Oaks, California, which is a suburb of Los Angeles. It's north and west of LA.
1: Juan, you've walked an unusual path (laughs) in becoming a financial advisor. How did you get there and how is your eclectic journey to becoming an advisor help you market your practice? That's a good question, Jim.
2: Let's start with my first career, which was in the film business. My undergraduate degree is in film from Penn State University. Go Nittany Lions. They're having a really good football season so far. I moved to New York City, broke into the film business in New York, got some work in some big productions. This is in the late 80s, early 90s. And then a friend of mine and I moved out to L.A. to continue to work in the film business. And he still is working in the film business and has worked on some pretty huge productions. I got out of it. It, it wasn't The film business is a great business when you're... For me, when I was young, out of college with no attachments, it was awesome. But as you start getting a little older and you want to put down roots and you want to have a family, it's not always conducive to a family life. Some people do great with it, but for me, I wasn't sure that that was going to work out. So I fell into nonprofit work just by accident as I was leaving the film business and looking for a new career and got into fundraising and realized Hmm. that I had a little bit of a knack for it. I liked talking to people and listening to them really is what you do in fundraising. You listen, do a yeah. lot of listening Eventually, you ask and you ask someone for a gift. I first got hired by the ALS association, their national office. So Lou Gehrig's disease their national office was located here in just outside of Los Angeles at the time they've since moved to Washington, DC, their national headquarters, but they were out here. And they hired me as their director of major gifts. After about a year and a half in the major gifts position, I moved into the gift planning positions. The director of gift planning uh, left the organization and the vice president of development asked me if I wanted to move over to that position. I said, yeah, that sounds great. I started learning gift planning. And gift planning, for those of you who don't know, it's a part of fundraising, it's a part of charitable giving that involves collaboration between the donor. You have to talk to their advisors because usually there's an estate planning attorney, there's a CPA, sometimes a financial advisor that have to get involved in deciding the right gift for someone to make because they could have different assets, they could have have different goals. Gift planning to me is very similar to financial planning. Mm -hmm. The steps are pretty much the same. I went into that role, I did very well, raised a lot of money for the ALS Association and then over to the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation, moved over there, was there for three and a half years and I got my CFP designation during that time. Mm -hmm. I got an MBA in financial planning And that allowed me to sit for the CFP. I passed the CFP exam, got my CFP. And at the time, my goal when I was working at the Reagan was to network with other financial advisors. I said, if I have the CFP and I'm a gift planner working for a nonprofit organization, I could position myself as a resource to these other financial advisors and say, hey, Mm -hmm. I know a lot about this space. In my experience, financial advisors don't have the depth of knowledge. They may know something about charitable giving sort of at the surface, but they don't really know all the details and all the things to look for, the things to watch out for, the pitfalls. And so I wanted to position myself as a resource to other financial advisors So use me. whether or not it results in a gift to my organization, I knew at some point it would come back. I didn't really care about that. I was trying to build relationships and position myself. In doing so, I got recruited (laughs) to my firm. I got called into a client case at a local firm, met with the client and the advisor. And then the advisor came to me after that meeting and said, hey, have you ever thought about doing financial advising Yeah, I already had the CFP. I had this depth of knowledge. I just needed to learn a few other things. And I said, okay. that's when I joined what was then Lamia Financial and is now Forum Financial Management. So it's been a very long and winding road (laughs) (laughs) where I am. But to answer the rest of your question, Jim, is how do I use that? It's I now am known locally through the networking that I do as the charitable giving guy. I'm the advisor who knows about charitable giving. And so usually I get calls from other advisors not just financial advisors, but other professionals. If they have a case that in- involves some complexity around charitable, I tend to get those calls. And within Forum Financial, where we have, mm-hmm. I don't know how many independent advisors we have with, working within Forum in our offices around the country, they also know me as the charitable guy. So I get calls from other Forum advisors with client cases oh. saying, hey, I have this client and this is what they're thinking of doing. Do you think a CRT would be appropriate in this situation? Or... And so I, I help out in those situations as well. So it's been great from, from a marketing standpoint.
3: Wow. Do you get contacted by charities?
2: I do. On occasion, yes. One of the things that I do at the moment is I'm a member of the faculty of something called the American Institute for Philanthropic Studies, Hmm. which is a program that's housed at California State University, Long Beach, uh, that awards a designation called the Certified Specialist in Plan Giving designation. So I went through that designation program when I was at the ALS Association, and now I'm on the faculty and I teach one of the modules that's on financial planning. So I do get to meet a lot of other gift planners from charities and through just being a faculty member now, I've gotten through several, a number of cohorts. I've been doing this faculty work since 2015 was my first time. Six, seven years now of students who know me and then they'll reach out to me. I do have some charities that do reach out to me because they know me as the advisor who has this Mm -hmm. area of expertise in my head somewhere.
3: It seems to me like charities, the reason I ask is partly I'm board president of the Modern American Dance Company just seems to me like maybe one of the things, and I don't even know if it's lucrative enough for you, but charities need help, especially now more than ever, especially in, in, like in the arts. They need a strategy to be able to have conversations with the donors, but also with advisors, just to help them make sure that they understand the options that are available.
2: That's a good point, Ken. I just presented this month at the National Charitable Gift Planners Association. They had a virtual national conference and I was on a panel the panel was Secrets of Engaging Professional Advisors, and I mm-hmm. there's an estate planning attorney and a CPA yeah. and myself on this panel. Oh, wow. And that's that's what we talked about is mm-hmm. there was an audience of gift planners at charities and fundraisers and maybe board members who wanted to know, how do I develop relationships with professional advisors? Now, to your point about whether it's lucrative or not, you know, the downside is that I don't necessarily want a ton of charities soliciting me to be on their board or anything like that. If if I don't have a relationship with the organization, it doesn't make sense for me to serve on a board of something. So I have to be very selective there. But if a gift planner calls and they have a donor situation that maybe they want to bounce an idea, I take those calls often. They do come to me for that. Yeah.
1: Okay. That's awesome. Thanks. Those calls can probably lots of times lead to future business or future relationship between what you do and what the advisor, what the gift planner is connected to, especially in the fact that for the life of the Plan Giving Association, then it was the PPP, and now it's the yeah. Association, now- CGB, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, charitable <Chernobyl laughs> gift planning. Yeah. There's always been a problem, in my estimation, of getting a seat at the table. Mm. You know, you've got the attorney for sure, you've got the accountant, then you've got the advisor. That's all becomes a lot. why do we need you at the the charity, we're going we're, to we're decide the gift, and here, we'll give it to you and so forth. So it's always right. been a struggle from the charitable to be taken seriously as it relates to the financial acumen that one needs. So many times in the charitable giving, I can tell you, because I've been in the charitable giving space for about a dozen years, you have a major gift officers, and you have a gift planning officers, and neither the two shall meet. They've All been right. lots of charities that try to combine the two, but it's just a different mindset And unfortunately, a lot of the big charities, or the larger, the large charities, are on such a schedule to deliver every quarter, corporate America. And we all know that gift planning or planned gifts, you can't schedule them on every quarter. They come when they come, and you've got to do a lot of seeding for that to come back to you. But when it comes back to you, as the numbers will attest, per dollar raised, it's the most cost-efficient way for a charity to raise money is through gift planning. Uh That's right. Yeah.
2: Yeah, events are overly expensive. You're paying 50 cents on the dollar in cost. But you're right. Gift planning requires what a former boss of mine used to describe as institutional patience. The board (laughs) members and the senior staff have to be patient, invest the time and the effort up front, like you were saying, Jim, to seed those gifts. Right. And and then they'll eventually pay off down the road. But at the same time, there are current gifts, current major gifts that could be structured as planned gifts. So it's not always testamentary yeah. gifts that sometimes boards see these as manna from heaven. It's like, no, there's just yeah. there's, there's, there's been planning. Yeah. You, just you just didn't know about it. It just happened right. to fall into yeah. this fiscal year or what have you. But there are a lot of major current gifts that are could be structured as planned mm-hmm. gifts, and there are clients with situations that could result in current dollars going to the charity, even within the structure a wrapper of a planned gift.
1: Since we're talking about that, Ken, and this is essential financial advisor marketing, what maybe you could actually give us an example to the advisors, because this show is dedicated to advisors themselves. As far as how do I broaden my knowledge base? If I broaden my knowledge base, then a little crew more interest in, to me, and so forth, and help build my practice. Give yeah. an example of how an advisor maybe could work with a charity, or he's on the board, or he's asked to get it on the board, and so forth. How would that work with regards to the advisors' background in financial planning and investments, and what the charity needs, and what you just said about that combination of a a current gift. How would that work?
2: Part of it is the advisor has to be open to thinking a little creative. Sometimes you have advisors who are locked into certain strategies, and it could be that a charitable remainder trust or a charitable lead trust, especially Mm. with interest rates where they are these days, could be really powerful. Mm -hmm. But they may not be thinking of that because they don't do it often. They may be worried about losing AUM. For Mm me, I don't even think about that. If it's a charitable trust, I'm more than likely gonna be able to manage those assets, which is a whole other conversation is how do you manage charitable trust assets, whether it's a remainder trust or a lead trust, and you're not generating too much in tax. But I never worried about losing assets. Yeah, it'll happen, but perhaps. Back to your question though, how do you educate advisors on this? That's part of my mission is certainly I want more financial advisors. I want to, to be looking at charitable giving within their practice. Mm -hmm. and including it as part of their practice. And the way to do that is to, I think, to identify those opportunities. And there's a handful of really perfect cases, fact patterns that lend themselves to a charitable gift. So one example is concentrated position. Client comes in, brand new client, they've got a legacy holding, it's got huge capital gains, they don't want to sell it because of the capital gains, whether it's yielding a dividend or not, that may or may not matter. But what do you do with this thing when you want to diversify? They have diversification risk, they have single Mm -hmm. stock risk. So a charitable remainder trust is a great solution. You have to look at the size of the position and you have to weigh the costs of the CRT, but if you can talk, if they're charitably inclined already, that might be the solution for them. And that's actually, I have to make that point very clear. I tell other advisors this, I go, listen, you can present a charitable gift option, but at the end of the day, if the client is not charitable, they will not likely go for it. It's gonna be a low win proposition for them because they're not gonna see the value there's always a trade-off. There's mm-hmm. always something that you give up as the client if you're using a charitable strategy to achieve a certain goal. You're gonna mm-hmm. give up control of the asset. You're gonna give up something. The government, the IRS, the tax code doesn't give you anything for, some might argue that they give you some things for free. But when it <laughs> comes to charitable giving, there is no free lunch. Get, yeah. There is gonna be a trade-off to get either the deduction or the income right. stream or whatever it is. But as long as the, cha- the client is open to a potentially charitable strategy, then a CRT when there's concentrated stock position is a great opportunity. Similar one would be real estate holding, client that has investment real estate, real property. Maybe they've done a bunch of 1031 exchanges. I have a client who's in this situation right now. It's like, I don't want to do another 1031 exchange. And they're getting older and they don't want to manage the property anymore, but they've got all this embedded gain from 1031 exchanges. What do they do with it? Again, a charitable remainder trust is a great solution for real estate. They can put the property into the charitable remainder trust and they can get an income stream like they were getting rental income out of it. And they don't have to worry. They don't have the headache of managing a property, dealing with tenants and all of that headache. So that's another great uh, opportunity. Another one is a spike in income. So let's say someone gets a golden parachute. I had a client where this happened, where they got a golden parachute. The company, there was a change of ownership and they were getting basically a million dollars taxable income in one year. And then they're going to retire the next year. So their income was going to drop precipitously. So what do you do in that case? And they were already charitably inclined. So we set up a grantor charitable lead trust for them. They were able mm-hmm. to get an upfront charitable deduction in the year that they needed it. They were able to use the lead trust to make the charitable gifts that they were making out of pocket. So then mm-hmm. now they no longer have to make those gifts out of pocket. Let the trust, Let, let the lead trust make those charitable distributions. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the term of the trust, whatever's left over comes back to them. It was a great win-win for them.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So a spike yeah. in income is a good opportunity. A sale of a business is another really good one where there are pre-sale opportunities. There's complexity based on the the type of entity that the business is, whether it's an S-Corp or a C-Corp or an LLC or partnership. So there's complexity around that, but there could be opportunities pre-sale and there's certainly opportunities post-sale to do some charitable planning. I look for those fact patterns Hmm. and I tell advisors, look for these fact patterns and then go, ah, there could be a charitable solution here then it's a question of knowing what what the solution is, how to implement it, and who the other players are that you need to collaborate with to make sure that it works properly.
3: Wow. That's amazing. Given your knowledge, you've got a really unique proposition. Without that, it's really hard to market. Can you talk about what marketing challenges you currently have? Yeah. Solved one of the hardest ones, which is that differentiation.
2: Right. Within... Other professional advisors, and particularly if I'm networking and there are other financial advisors in the room, I do stand out because of this area of expertise. The one challenge I would say is that it's it's very hard to do target marketing direct to the end client because you're reaching charitable clients. That's not a niche. Mm -hmm. It's a subset of the population, but it's not like I work with radiologists in a certain geographical area. That's like a real niche or it's it's not like that. it's been challenging to do any direct targeted marketing to potential clients. I'm using this as a differentiator among other professionals, and it's worked well in that respect, but yeah. that's the one challenge is how do I get to the end client? So that what I'm doing now is I'm leaning my practice more towards business owners and particularly mm-hmm. business o- owners who are soon to be in transition of their business. And that way I'm, I'm targeting a specific population of potential ideal clients and then the charitable, Expertise is uh, an overlay on top of that.
3: Another thing that just strikes me just off the top of my head is you've got a tremendous amount of knowledge in this. So you could actually, as a faculty member, you've already got experience putting training curriculum together. So this is something you could do online and market to other advisors. And that, that could be a really powerful thing.
2: You read my mind. I'm actually working on that right now. I was hoping to launch it by third quarter, but can't yeah. complain, work has been good, so. Yeah.
3: Well, uh, third quarter's uh, the end of the week.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. So now we're looking at the end of the year, but right. I do have an online teaching mod, teaching program, I use an online class that I hope to market to other financial advisors, and, and it could be other professionals too, but specifically yeah. for financial advisors on how to in- successfully incorporate charitable giving into your practice. And yeah. it takes all of these concepts and puts them into a bunch of modules and pay some nominal fee to, to access the course and material. That is a project that I've yeah. been working on, especially okay. since last year. I gave that presentation to two different national conferences, and then to an FPA earlier this year, to an FBA knowledge circle group. I'm like, oh, there must be some demand for this information. <laughs> I
3: yeah. should probably do something well, with it.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I, and I think you addressed the grill in the room when you mentioned the fact that you weren't concerned with losing AUM. And. That's a real fact for lots of advisors. Is that when they think about charities, they think about the fact that their AUM is going to decrease as a result when they're working with the charity is going to man- now manage that money. I'd like you to put that to bed permanently because that is not the case. The case is that the charitable organization will gladly allow you to actually be online and manage that money because they know the fact that if you're managing the money, you're going to be in contact. Not only with client A, but client B, client C, cl- there could be a whole host of other clients that could be set up to have the beneficiaries that charity. So that's they're right. not going to bite the hand that feeds them. So, what could you could you talk a little bit about that for advisors? That's the first thing they say. Oh, I don't want to do this because of X. Let's just get this out of the way. I uh,
2: thank you, and that's a great point, Jim. And you're right. Uh, I think that's more of a myth than anything else, an, an urban myth.
1: Yeah.
2: Certainly, if you're making direct stock gifts to charity. They want to make a year-end gift of $10,000 worth of Apple stock or whatever it is. Okay, so if you have that, and you might lose that. But at the end of the day, I think in terms of charitable trusts that need to be managed, as, there are assets that need to be managed. Even donor advised funds, a lot of DAF providers now are allowing advisors to manage the asset depending on the account size. Schwab mm-hmm. Charitable has a minimum, but there are other DAF sponsors, donor advised fund sponsors out there like the, uh, the American Endowment Foundation that they will allow the advisor to manage the assets first dollar. Their minimum account size is $10,000 for a donor advised fund. And you as the advisor could be managing that donor advised fund, those assets and and billing on them if that's your business model. You're right. I think advisors just need to forget about that and focus on doing the right thing for the client. In doing the right thing for the client, you're also doing the right thing for the world at large because you're you're supporting philanthropic giving at large. And it's just going to come back to you. That's just how I feel about all this. I'm not worried about it. It's going to yeah. it'll come back to me in, in more business or some other way. The universe will compensate me know, whatever. It's small <laughs> potatoes to be worrying about nickel and diming if you've got that fear in mind. So I, I'm hoping that other advisors listening and watching this will just put that yeah. out of their minds. It's just not it's not yeah. going to be the case. You're going to get more business by focusing on this rather than less.
1: It's a different conversation as I recall when I was the director of plant giving with the USS Midway Museum. Mm-hmm. It's amazing the conversations when you talk to forty-five year old clients and seventy-five 75- to eighty year-old clients. That's sure there's a few of them that want to make sure their return is what it is and blah, blah, blah. But it's almost like they cross get to a certain age, not across the board, when they get to a certain age, they cross the threshold. And then it becomes more most important is the legacy. Why am I here? Who am I with? Who I want to benefit. It it becomes a lot more Ely than just oh, this is for me. And you see it all over the world. You see the endowment, you see the private foundations put names on university walls. It's <laughs> they're everywhere. And that's the conversation. And as a financial advisor, the more you understand how that conversation shifts from hey, I need to have return right now, blah blah blah, into something more transcendence, if you will. Yeah. And, Let's face it, most of the assets in America are controlled by people ages 60 years old and, and over, and it just, it just gets more more broader. So sure, there's a lot of Silicon Valley entrepreneurs, millionaires, and so forth, but across the board, you're going to get a clients in their 70, 70, I would say 75 up, have a totally different conversation. And if you're an advisor, if you're a 30-year-old or 40-year-old advisor, and you understand that, that puts you in a position where no one else is. That's... You become unique.
2: Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that's a good point, uh, Jim. And I think you raise uh, a, another point in that one of the obstacles that I find financial advisors have in this whole area is how to initiate that conversation. Correct. That's like very personal. I'm like, you're dealing with their money. Isn't that very personal too? <laughs> I think that one of the things that I've in the conference presentations that I've done is I've had a couple of slides that listed some questions that advisors can incorporate into their discovery process, into their conversation process, whatever it is, that, however it is that an advisor takes a new client through and asks them about their situation, their goals, etc. These are questions that you can ask that elicit or tease out their charitable inclination. As simple as, what do you want to do for the world? And then just shut up and listen to the answer. Yeah. Or how do you want to be remembered? There you go. And then you can go, so those are kind of general Mm thought-provoking questions and then you can get to the more specific and say are there charitable causes that you donate to now or Mm -hmm. that you volunteer for now and then obviously there'll be an answer there or is your alma mater important to you do you donate to your university or your college a question we ask is do religion and faith play a role in your life because religious organizations are the number one recipient of charitable dollars even to this day and with education higher education and and then medicine and health hospitals right behind but so you want to ask that question but you want to do it in a non-threatening way do religion do, so the way we ask it is do faith or religion play a role in your life and if the answer is yes they oh are there important institutions or people associated with your faith or religion and then yeah. they and then you just get them talking about it so there are ways of getting this information from a client or a potential client so that you can know how charitable they are and areas are of interest to them specifically is it in the environment is it animals? whatever it might be. At least having that knowledge gets you a long way there to talking about being able to introduce charitable strategies when they're appropriate.
1: Yeah. I became a CFP back in the 80s, and I always thought when I got to the uh, in middle 2000s when I transitioned to nonprofits that it would be great if the CFP schools could add a charitable module. And they've got the insurance, they've got the estate planning, the retirement, all those major modules. But what's missing, in my belief, is a charitable planning module.
2: Yeah. It's like a a little sliver of the general financial planning course. Uh, It may be covered in estate and tax, but not on its own. Yeah.
1: Not on its own. Yeah. But I think if more people knew how beneficial it would be, like you said, for the world at large, I think about some of the CRTs that I've been trustee on a couple of CRTs and talked to individuals that say, I love the CRT and I love the actual income that I get every year. But what I mainly love is that when I'm not here, the balance of my account is going to help Doctors Without Borders.
2: Powerful. It'll just deepen your relationship with your clients. If oh, you yeah. get to know them at that level, it will make the relationship very sticky. It will. And it gives you an opportunity to then talk to multiple generations. If you have a donor advice fund and you open one for a client, talk to them about who you think your children would want to continue this and Mm -hmm. name the children as successor advisors. Mm -hmm. And so the donor advice fund has longevity. Then you start a relationship with the next generation and so on. There's so many benefits to this Mm -hmm. area of planning. And I think it's a missed opportunity for a lot of advisors who either don't feel like they have the knowledge base, don't know how to start the conversation, are afraid of losing AUM, any of those things, and those are all easily overcome, overcomeable, if that's a word. <laughs> yeah.
3: <laughs> what do you yeah. mean? <laughs> yeah. So, Juan, yeah. do you use any kind of uh, traditional marketing strategies? It sounds like you, you do a little bit of networking with other advisors, and I think for you, there could be a great opportunity for you to turn them into great referral sources introducing you to other advisors and so on and so forth. But like, what about direct mail or anything like that? Because you mentioned you're also interested in trying to reach out to business owners who are maybe in the process of planning an exit strategy. And so maybe reaching out to even business brokers or somebody like that to make those connections as well.
2: I don't use direct mail. Pretty much all of my marketing has been focused on relationship building and networking so i belong to several different networking groups i belong to a local group here called the family business roundtable where i'm in touch with other professionals who deal solely with family-run businesses to get those relationships going yeah it's been a lot of just networking i belong to my local estate planning council and that's been very helpful to meet other attorneys and CPAs and all the different disciplines that make up an estate planning council. And now our council also has a membership category for philanthropic advisors. So the gift planners from the charities can join our council under that membership category. And we've got a few in that category as well. So it's been a lot of that, a lot of relationship building. It's very, it's somewhat low cost as opposed to direct mail. It's not a sure. shotgun approach versus a, more of a, a rifle, but that seems to have worked for me and giving presentations. So being on the speaking circuit. I've got two presentations I'm giving, one in October and one in November to to two different charitable organizations. I'm trying to starting to really hit the speaking circuit there and and become known that way. That's been the traditional kind of marketing I've been doing. I do have an Instagram account, at financially underscore zen, which I started during the pandemic as a way of communicating ideas to keep people from being too stressed out over what was happening at the time. I'm thinking of as I launch this online course in philanthropic giving of just pivoting that account and focusing on the charitable giving and that side of my practice.
3: Yeah, that's amazing. So do you do any blog posting or anything like that at this point? No,
2: I've written some articles for my firm's blog for Forum Financial. So they have a knowledge blog and I've been asked to write two or three articles uh, here and there. Everyone, I wrote one on charitable lead trusts uh, that I just updated so that they should be publishing the update uh, anytime now and I've been asked to do another one. I'm actually giving a presentation to other forum advisors next month on referrals and how to get referrals, what's the secret of referrals, since I've done pretty well with existing clients and with other professionals. Blog posting on my own is not something that that I've done, but I should probably consider it, as I again, as I think about how to market this online course. That probably makes a lot of sense.
3: Yeah, I think guest podcasting also is great. Since you're already... Doing speaking in person, I would look at doing some kind of a guest podcast strategy where you're getting in front of audiences that have already been built by the podcasters, and getting in front of the right people, and it's just great exposure. So that's another really powerful technique. And yeah, since you're already speaking, you've got that nailed. It's just adding that online distribution strategy to it. I think
2: that's a good idea. One of the things on my to-do list is to do a Guest blog post for com on charitable giving. That's a wide, huge audience of yeah. financial advisors, yeah. and so I think that'd be really good as well. So, and now they're doing more guest blog posting, accepting more from guest authors. So that's a good thing too.
3: Yeah, and, and just video too. Creating a YouTube channel, doing just short little videos talking about different scenarios. I think it'd be a really powerful channel for you as well. Video content is kind of like the golden piece of content. You can repurpose video so many different ways. You can turn it into a blog post by transcribing it. You can chunk it up into little pieces to where you can use it for social media posts. You can embed it on your website. You can turn it into ads. It's just a real marketing powerhouse where you can take that one piece of content and repurpose it. Just watching you present yourself on this broadcast, I think video would be probably the number one channel I would look yeah. at.
1: All right. Well, I appreciate that tip. Thank yeah. you. That's a good segue into the new templates or the new services that we bring because you know for some time you've had a profile on financialadvisor.com and you mentioned the fact that you're trying to get something blogging going. <laughs> and the benefit from financialadvisor.com, if I can give my own 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 company, a jolt here, is the fact that it's the only interactive profile in the financial service industries. There's a lot of directories out there that are consumer facing and the consumer chooses you, but you're limited to what you can do as an advisor as to what they see. On a of course, in your profile, not only can you see about your experience, uh, what you do in volunteer, just a whole data set about what you do, but you as an advisor have the ability to upload your blogs, upload podcast, video, any type of social media, and they all connect with your profile. It's a beautiful thing that we've created, and I'll let uh, that's why when Ken and I got together, I said, this is a great idea that we should pursue, Ken, because no one else is doing it. And I think there's a real need in the marketplace for something like this. So I'll let Ken talk more about what uh, he brings to the table. We help
3: advisors develop a guest podcasting strategy or a video marketing strategy. We write content. We do a lot of different things. One of the things that I think is really important to take away is if you are going to create content for search engine optimization purposes a lot of people want to be inclined to just post that only on their website. You actually can get really powerful search engine optimization benefit by power in, by posting that content first on financial advisors and then using it as a way to build a high quality inbound link back to your page or your profile that you really boost from a, a search engine optimization perspective on your website. You certainly absolutely need to be posting original content on your own website as well. I think that's something that a lot of people overlook added benefit to financialadvisors.com. And building inbound quality links is one of the hardest things that you can do from a search engine optimization perspective. This gives you a natural channel to be able to do that. Definitely take advantage of that. We offer a really broad range of digital marketing services or advice to help people leverage the things that they're already doing and get more out of it and amplify it.
2: That's good. I maybe, I maybe have to call you. and We may have to have a conversation. <laughs> right,
3: that's good. I was thinking the same thing. I need to get my, my board plugged into everything that you're talking about here too, because raising money in the arts and, and the arts weren't able to perform at all last year. It's been such yeah. a struggle. It's pretty amazing. The possibilities that are out there. It all takes time and energy and focus. Number one, it takes awareness. And Mm -hmm. if you don't have that awareness, you don't know that you can make that stuff happen. Yeah.
1: Anyway, it's been a great conversation with you, Mr. Juan. Really appreciate you coming along and explaining about your history and working with the, uh, the Lou Gehrig's Association and the Ronald Reagan Foundation. That just all does some great work there, and how you traversed into uh, nationally into financial planning, and how you're making it all work together. And I'm glad that advisors call on you because if you're an advisor, especially the young advisors, so I, I really do hope that you get some time on Kitsis this X Y network because he's all about you know, the young advisors, 25 to 40. And yep. what a great world it would be if we get those guys started. Yeah,
2: that's one of the uh, conferences where I presented last year was the XYPN National Conference uh, virtually.
1: I'm a baby boomer and we're a aged and so forth. But if we can get those, the 25 to 45-year-old crowd thinking about the fact that it's not a separate charity, it's not a DAF, if I can make it part of my practice mm-hmm. and be ready for those hints when someone says something about the fact that, you know, for instance, they're when you ask them what did you give last year and they mention an organization or they start talking about dogs, or they start talking about people that are new to this country, they start talking about the Doctors Without Borders and all these great organizations or the Symphony or whatever it is, whatever their passion is, those are big cues. If you're an on-top advisor, you take those cues, you remember them, you keep your mouth shut, <laughs> and you listen. I guarantee if you're an advisor and you understand what the passion is. You're going to be head and shoulders above anybody that comes to them and says, well, you got a good ESG fund over here that you should be blah, 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 whatever. (laughs) It's not that you don't know about the ESG fund. It's just the fact that you can marry that proactive investment knowledge with something that will appeal to that client. That's right. And it's more than money. I agree. I couldn't have said it better myself, Jim. Thank you. Thank you, Juan. Do you have anything to add, Ken?
3: the last week, wrap up? No, I'm just amazed. Thanks so much, Juan. This was great.
1: I really enjoyed it.
2: Sure. My pleasure. Thank you both. Really appreciate the opportunity.
1: Thank you, Juan. We'll see you next time on the Essential Financial Advisor Marketing Show. Bye for now.
0: Thanks for listening to today's episode. Please be sure and subscribe to the Essential Financial Advisor Marketing Podcast on your favorite podcast platform. We'd love for you to review us wherever you get your podcasts. Visit financialadvisorsupport.com for more episodes, our financial advisor directory, our blogs and video resources, and links to set up a free consultation with the hosts of this podcast. Thanks again and stay tuned.